0: Chapter 38 of France to Scandinavia by Frank G. Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. An island city of the north. More than a thousand miles north of Boston, about 4,000 miles east of New York, and 150 miles nearer the North Pole than Sitka, Alaska, lies a city of islands. It is founded on granite ground, smooth by the glaciers, when all northern Europe was covered with ice, and the rocks upon which it is built are divided by mighty rivers. It has 60 miles of islands between it and one of the greatest salt seas of the world, and behind it is a freshwater lake whose islands by actual count number 1630. The islands in front extend on and on to the Baltic and run north and south and eastward to Finland. The picturesque scenery surrounding this city, created by God and improved by man, has its counterpart nowhere else in the world. This island city has been called the Venice of the North, but the name Venice is much overworked. It has been tacked on to Amsterdam, to Bangkok, Siam, to Soochow, China, and to every other municipality that has a dozen or more little waterways in it. The city of which I write has no river narrower than the Grand Canal at Venice, and the streams that roll around it and through it are so broad and so deep That steamers plow their course to its heart. The name of this city is Stockholm, the capital of Sweden. Venice stands on a marsh. Amsterdam rests upon piles which, as they have sunk, have made its houses lean backward and forward as though they were drunk. Bangkok, built on the windings of the Minam, has houses which float, and the same is also true of Petrograd, which, owing to the negligence of the Soviet government, is fast sinking back into the morass, out of which it rose at the command of Peter the Great. There is nothing unstable about the foundation of Stockholm. Its granite base dates back thousands of years to the days when the great ice sheet melted and left these rocks bare. Therefore, the buildings are massive. Those near the water are so heavy that they could not keep their heads above it in any of the half-floating cities I have mentioned. The palace of the king is a huge structure of granite, covering more than three acres and surrounding a square court. It was built on an island 16 years before we declared our independence of England. Sweden is older than any other state in Europe and has been a kingdom for about 1,200 years. The government today is a constitutional monarchy with a Riksdag or congress of two chambers. The first has 150 members who are elected by certain town and county councils for terms of eight years and the second has 230 members, chosen in general elections every four years. Women have the right to vote, and there are some in the Riksdag. On another island, a pistol shot away, are the Houses of Parliament, which cost several million dollars. A few more islands beyond is one which has the new City Hall, with a high tower surmounted by a Greek temple of copper, ending in a great ball of gold hanging like a full moon in the sky. Above this golden ball, at the end of a golden staff, are the three gold crowns that form the coat of arms of the nation. The City Hall is a massive $10 million structure of red brick, with a roof of bright copper here and there turned green by the weather. The copper was laid on in plates, each of which represents the patriotic spirit of the citizens. During the World War, when taxes went up and the price of copper rose to the skies, the city council decided that the red metal roof must be abandoned on account of the cost. Thereupon, the Stockholmers began to subscribe. Individual after individual put his hand in his pocket and brought out $6 to buy one of these copper shingles, as we might call the plates which cover the building. Nobody was allowed to give more than one plate, but thousands contributed, and thus the building was roofed. The name of each donor is engraved on the plate he paid for. It was in the motor launch of the United States Minister, with the American flag flying at the stern, that I made my way through this city of islands. Suppose you sit down beside me, and we shall make part of the journey over again. The launch is what is called an outside archipelago boat. This means that it is big enough and strong enough to travel the seas, and that in it one could, if he would, venture across the Baltic to Finland. The launch is about 40 feet long and 10 or more feet in width with a gasoline engine not far from the center. It uses its 60-cent gasoline without a carburetor, and it is run by a Swedish engineer. We start at the Grand Hotel Royal, an immense building facing the quay, and go upstream past the palace. We pass a dozen little steamers in from the Baltic and glide under the granite arches of the bridge to the island of Staden. We just graze the boat of a fisherman who is using a windlass to cast a net 10 feet in diameter into the water. Scores of men like him may be seen fishing here at any hour of the day. On the right, we can see the Royal Opera House, where last night we heard Battistini, the successor of Caruso in Rigoletto, and beyond it, the King's Garden, the chief winter promenade of the capital. Still further on are the foreign offices, banks, and other large structures. While in the rear, along narrow streets, is the business section with its many stores filled with fine goods as we move onward we go by island after island each rising from its smooth rock of granite on some there are factories on others warehouses and great lumber yards on one we see the city prison and on another the military academy or west point of sweden which here faces the water as does our great school on the hudson there are private schools on the same island with an athletic ground near the water where two-score, blue-eyed, light-haired children are playing. We stop and photograph the girls in their ring around the rosy, and snap the boys running back and forth in association football. The children look and act the same as our school children at home, only they are much more polite. Every boy raises his cap when we leave, and as we chug away from the wharf, they give us a hearty class yell of rah-rah-rah, The Swedes are a cultured people. The University of Uppsala was founded before Columbus discovered our hemisphere and has 2,500 students today. There are all sorts of schools and academies, and a common school education is compulsory. The percentage of illiteracy is far lower than in the United States, and one may travel for days and not find a man or a child who cannot read and write. The women are well-educated, and some have made their mark in literature. Selma Lagerlof is one of the leading women writers of today. One of her stories has been translated into 12 languages and her fairy tale, The Wonderful Adventures of Nils, which tells how a Swedish boy turned to a pygmy and took a ride over Sweden on the back of a wild goose, ranks with the stories of Grimm and Hans Christian Andersen. It is now used in the reading and geography classes in the primary schools. Miss Lagerlof has been awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature and is the only woman among the 18 immortals elected to the Swedish Academy. Besides viewing the city from the waterways, I have spent much of my time on the streets. Among the things that I like here are the telephones of Stockholm. Many of them stand alone on the street corners or in the parks, looking like sentry boxes walled with glass. Each has slots for small coins and in each is a printed card giving the rates for Stockholm and all Sweden. There are telephones in the restaurants where some of the tables have telephone extensions. Suppose you are sitting there and want to send a message home or to ask a question of someone in another part of the country. All you do is to crook your finger, the waiter brings a phone to your table and you call up whom you please. The hello girls here are government employees for the government runs the telephones. They are very polite and you don't have to ring more than once. They pronounce the word hello as though it were spelt halloo, with the accent on the last syllable, and they never tell you the line is busy when it is not. Another thing I like here in Stockholm is the food. These Swedes are among the best livers of modern humanity. They eat early and late and take snacks between times. One curious feature of their gastronomy is known as the smorgasbord a sort of appetizer eaten before the regular luncheon and dinner. This is sometimes served at the dinner table and sometimes at a separate table in another room or in the dining room itself. Imagine a long board covered with scores of dishes filled with all sorts of relishes, salads, and salt meats, fish, and cheese. The guests are supposed to step up and help themselves to any or all of the dishes set out, the idea being to work up an appetite For the real meal to come i dined the other day at the opera house restaurant and paid a small extra charge for the smorgasbord besides hams pickles and dried fish there were dried reindeer meat from northern sweden caviar from russia half a dozen salads bread and butter and four kinds of drinks the swedes are great eaters indeed but they are now trying to decrease their drinking they have worked out a new method of regulating the sale of intoxicating liquors which they think is much better than our form of prohibition. The country has had different kinds of temperance legislation in the past, and recently on a straight referendum for or against prohibition, 51% of the votes cast were wet and 49% dry. The result of that vote was to continue the system of strict regulation, which many conservative Swedes consider preferable to ours. This is to sell no drinks except to those who have what are known as Mott books. These are given out by local liquor societies authorized by law to decide just who may have the right to buy liquor and how much he may buy. The most anyone can have is four liters or less than a gallon per month, and he has to be beyond suspicion to get that. The Mott book, which is about the size of a savings bank passbook, is issued only upon application and investigation. The applicant must write down full information concerning his birth, antecedents and residence, and record the amount of his assessed income and the rent he pays. If he is behind in his taxes, he will not get a book, and if he has been arrested for drunkenness, his chances are slim. If his application is granted, he fills out and signs a card which is filed in the store where he buys his liquors. Each time a sale is made, a detachable slip upon which the owner signs his name is left as a receipt for the liquor delivered And his signature must be verified with the card in the store bearing his name. His book shows the record of just how much he has bought and there's no chance for him to run over the quota allotted to him. Only one of these Mott books is given out to the head of a family, husband or wife, and none to anyone under 21 years of age. The law also provides regulations for the restaurants and cafes selling liquors. I am told that drunkenness has greatly decreased since the inauguration of the Mott Book system and that the amount of alcohol sold illicitly has dwindled more than one half. I have before me a card giving a diagram of the decline in street drunkenness in the number of hospital alcoholic cases and in the cases of chronic alcoholism in the city of Stockholm over an eight-year period. The street drunkenness declined 67 percent, the hospital cases an equal amount and chronic alcoholism was reduced by 80%. The first figures were taken from the books of the police and the last two from hospital records. A curious condition was produced here by the almost absolute prohibition caused by the blockade in those war years when almost no liquor could be brought in and legally sold. This, the authorities claim, had much the same effect of increasing drunkenness as our own wets, maintain that prohibition is had in the United States. As soon as the people here found they could not buy all the liquor they wanted at reasonable prices, illegal stills were set going and the private manufacturer and bootlegger flooded the market so that drunkenness increased by leaps and bounds. It kept going until liquor was supplied by the mott book system and then drunkenness began to decline. Now that the people can get liquor legally, the bootleggers have vanished. Dr. Ivan Bratt, who is the originator of this mott book system, and at the head of the movement for the regulation of liquor in Sweden, tells me that because of the illegal selling always arising out of total prohibition, he believes strictly controlled, legalized trade in liquors is best. He says there are many factors that prevent prohibition from being entirely prohibitive, and that no law can be enforced unless there is a general sentiment in its favor. Otherwise, he says, it will have the opposite effect from what was intended. He does not believe prohibition as it now exists in the United States can be a permanent success. End of chapter thirty-eight